It's amazing what begins to open up and be clarified. Now, this particular incident is interesting in a couple of ways because Jesus uses the same object uh, to give two very different lessons. We, we kind of get a twofer in, uh, in this object lesson. And it's all in a matter of five verses, and we're going to be looking at both of those lessons. Now, you remember as we take a look at this passage that just two days before this, Jesus had come to, uh, come to the town of Bethany. Uh, they just left Jericho down below the mountain uh, where we find uh, Jerusalem, where he had healed two blind men, one, one named Bartimaeus, and where he had given, brought salvation to the man by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a, a tax collector. And then in Bethany, just six days before the crucifixion, he, along with his disciples, stayed in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it wasn't too long before that that uh, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So that was a curiosity for people as well. And then from that home, they kind of made day trips into Jerusalem during the week because being Passover, the city was jammed with people, overflowing and so they, many people were, uh, stayed in homes outside of the city. Now, Monday morning, a crowd from Jerusalem came in. This is just a little bit of a review. And uh, from Bethphage paraded Jesus into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna, save us now. And you remember that as he was going, the Pharisees asked Jesus to quiet the crowd. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. And then he pronounces a devastating judgment upon Jerusalem, which came to pass 40 years later when Rome came in and overthrew everything. But it also has had lasting effects for Israel even to the present day. It's a consequence of having heard the truth and having Jesus himself uh, presented to them, and they rejected both Jesus and the truth. Now, I remind you that that judgment pronounced on them, I, I remind you of that judgment because it has something very significant to say about our passage and story here this morning. Now, on the dawning of the new day, Tuesday, um, he again went back to the city, and he went into the temple, as you remember. Uh, he was angry when he saw what was going on. He said, my house is called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. And he went through and cleansed the temple. And once it was cleansed, then true worship could start. Then true ministry, and he ministered to people all day long. And it took, that whole process took a full day because at verse 17 says, and he left them and went out to the city of Bethlehem where he spent the night. So he went in the morning and all that whole cleansing process and the ministry to the people that, that were there took all day long. So we come to Wednesday of that week and he comes back to Jerusalem and there he has a major confrontation with the religious leaders over his authority, starting in verse 23, which we're actually going to be dealing with next week. But we need to stop a second and look at an incident that happened on the way into Jerusalem that day. He comes across a fig tree. Now, in, in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 11... Mark actually tells us that he comes to the fig tree first on Tuesday morning, the previous morning, 
And on the way into Jerusalem, uh, on the way into Jerusalem to cleanse the temple, then on the next day, on Wednesday morning, they come back to the fig tree, and there they see it withered. Matthew kind of condenses both of those incidents into one narrative from verses 18 to 22, which we'll look at in just a second. See, Matthew isn't so concerned about the chronology of the events as he is in the lesson learned, the, the, the message of the fig tree, which actually is more important. Now, keep in mind that Jesus came as king. It's very important to keep this in mind. Uh, Remember that Matthew's overarching purpose of writing his gospel was to present Jesus as king and to open up the the concept of the kingdom of God coming. This was also to fulfill the Old Testament. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, you'll see there that God promised that there would be a king that would come from Judah and he would have a scepter, and, he'd, and that scepter would belong to him as the rightful heir. And as you study all the way through the Old Testament, this is restated over and over again. The promise of, of the king fills the Old Testament. In Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's promised that David would be, have a great son, a greater son, excuse me, a son who would be an eternal king. In Psalm 2 and Psalm 45 and Psalm uh, 72, this is a pro- there's a promise of a king who is coming, the one who would reign supreme. In Isaiah 9, it says of him, the government will be on his shoulders. Zechariah 9 talks about his kingliness, and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Micah all talk about a king who would be none other than God. And in fact, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he says he would be born in Bethlehem. And out of you, Micah says, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, that he would be the rightful ruler of Israel. So as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Monday, he listened to the accolades and the praises and the hosannas and accepted the coronation as the king, as shallow as those turned out to be, but he deserved them. And having been affirmed and inaugurated as king on Monday, he then proceeds immediately to do two kingly things. The first being to go in and cleanse the temple, and the second was to curse the tree. Both acts are sovereign acts of sovereign authority, and we'll talk about that. But instead of Attacking Rome, which is what the Jews of the time were expecting of the Messiah, he attacked Judaism. Instead of becoming a conqueror, he was a confronter. Instead of talking about revolution, he talked about righteousness. Instead of cleaning out the enemy, he cleaned out his own house. And this was not consistent with what the people were expecting. This was not the kind of king they were looking for or that they wanted, and it still isn't today. They're still not interested in the Jesus of the Bible. They're still not interested in the one who is the son of righteousness. They're still looking for a military leader. They're looking for an economic deliverer. They're still looking for the Messiah. And so when he comes as king, both the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree become extremely significant things. And, we, and if we don't understand that, we won't understand why the people wanted to kill him so badly. The first thing, the cleansing of the temple, was a denunciation of their religion. It was a denunciation of their worship, the way they worshipped. 
And the second thing, the cursing of the tree, which we'll look at today, was a denunciation of them as a nation. So instead of overthrowing their enemies, in a sense, he was denouncing them. And it's, it, it's inconceivable to them that their own Messiah would ever come and condemn them. And that's why they put him to death. They would have nothing to do with it. They, would have, uh, they did not want him to be king. Uh, in Luke chapter 19, they're, they're actually saying, we don't want this man to be our king. They rejected him. So we've already taken a look at the whole cleansing of the temple uh, aspect, a very dramatic scene. This morning we're going to take a look at the cursing of the tree. So Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, "'May you never bear fruit again.'" Immediately the tree, uh, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So Matthew starts right there in verse 18 by saying, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Now, Matthew says early in the morning. Okay, so which, which morning? Is it Tuesday or Wednesday? Now, again, for Matthew, it's a combination of both Tuesday and Wednesday mornings. He just combines the two, two events to tell the story about the fig tree. Mark tells us that Tuesday morning Jesus went in, found the tree, cursed it, and then Wednesday when they went back in, they found that it was withered and dead. So, is there a contradiction here? Is this an error in the Bible? Does this prove that we can't trust the Bible because there are differences? The stories don't match. I don't believe so at all. It's just a different way of the men telling the same story. Some people like to give all the details of every moment of the day. Others like to just get to the point. I could say, you know, the other day I went down to the, the garage to have the oil changed in my car, and as they were doing that, they noticed my brake pads uh, needed changing, so they came and told me. I didn't have time that, that day, so I said I'd come back and do that. So they did the oil change. I went home. The next morning I came to the church. I saw Joe Schutte uh, working out here in the garden, and I talked to him about the hot dog thing coming up. And then finally Friday I, I, I went back to the garage, and they changed the brake pads. Or I could say, the other day I took my car to the garage for oil change. They told me I need to change my brakes, and so I said, go ahead and do it. Same story. No lying. No contradiction. It was just a different way of sharing it. No error. Now, before we get, there's a reason I'm saying that. I'll come back to that as well. Now, before we get into exactly what took place, it's interesting to note that the way Mark narrates a story in two parts um, kind of brackets what took place at the cleansing of the temple. There's a beginning part and there's an end part, and between the two incidents with the fig tree, Jesus went in and cleansed the uh, temple. Both are about judgment and condemnation, condemnation of false worship in the temple, condemnation of the nation as a whole with the fig tree. 
Now Matthew in verse 19 says, Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Now, coming to a fig tree in Israel, that's not unusual. Uh, Apparently they are very common in that part of the world. Now, understand that I'm no expert in fig trees, but it's amazing as you do some internet uh, searching what uh, you can come up with and find out about them. There's a couple of things about this tree that are important to understand. First of all, it was unusual for that fig tree to have leaves on it in the first place because it was only April, probably the beginning of April. Why do I say that? Because I, and I looked that up as well. Passover is usually the, the, the 15th day of the month of Nisan, the Hebrew calendar, and that's usually this year it was the very end of May into a few days into April, so very, very early in the spring. And fig trees uh, apparently bloom twice a year, but the early time that they bloom is May or June. So end, end of uh, March, beginning of April is not the season. They shouldn't even have leaves. Secondly, is this tree was alongside the road. It wasn't anybody's private tree in an orchard, so Jesus wasn't going in to destroying somebody's, uh, somebody's fig tree. Just seeing a fig tree by the road, Matthew says he went up to it and found nothing on it but leaves. In fact, in Mark, Mark chapter 11, he tells us that it wasn't even in fig season. So that gives us a clue that it was still earlier than uh, it, it should be blooming in the first point. But there's something else important about the presence of fig trees that we need to know to really understand the importance or magnitude of Jesus' actions on that day. You see, Palestine was a land of fig trees. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7, when God described the beauty of the land, He said it's a land with brooks and streams and, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley and vines and fig trees. The delicious fruit of the fig was abundant in that land. Uh, if you remember back in Numbers chapter 13 when the spies went, out, uh, went, went in to spy out the land of Canaan, they came out and reported there, there were fig trees there. And that was a demonstration of the great treasure and fertileness of the land. In fact, in Zechariah 3 verse 10, the promise is that someday in the kingdom, every man is going to sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. I wonder if heaven there's all kinds of fig trees that we just hang out under as we're worshiping the Lord. The fig tree was a symbol of prosperity and the wealth and richness of the land agriculturally. And so it follows that the absence of fig trees, and there are fewer and fewer even in Israel today, would be a mark of judgment on the land. Now, fig trees can be 20 feet high and 20 feet wide. never realized that. They're, they're large trees. And they become great shade trees. In fact, if you remember, uh, that's where Nathaniel was sitting when Jesus was calling his disciples. He saw before he even met Nathaniel, um, after he talked to Nathaniel, he said, How do you know me, Nathaniel? Asked Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So as we said, fig trees bear fruit twice a year, May and June, and then later in the year. And here's the most important part about the fig tree. The fruit comes before the leaves. The fruit comes before the leaves. And so if you see a tree with leaves, what should you expect? Fruit. It should be there. And when Jesus saw the tree with leaves, which is rather amazing in and of itself at that time of year, He was expecting 
fruit. So why did, why did the tree have leaves and why was it blooming? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us. Different possible reason. Maybe the tree was in a very fertile part of, of, uh, of soil there that, that just, uh, maybe the spring fooled it. Like it often, we get a warm snatch in the beginning of, uh, the end of winter here and flowers begin to bloom. Uh, maybe uh, the soil had unique nutrients. Maybe there was a stream nearby and fed the roots. Um, or maybe just God allowed that fig tree to have leaves for the object lesson that Jesus needed to give. We don't know. But it should have had fruit because it had leaves. And so Jesus goes over to it because he's hungry and wants some fruit. But when he got there, it says he found nothing on it except leaves. The fact that it did not have fruit would indicate that there was something wrong with the tree. As a diseased tree, um, it was not bearing fruit. Um, it never had any. It was a fruitless tree. And it became for him a profound illustration to use, an object lesson. Jesus, he was a master of using n- nature things as object lessons. Use water and birds and animals and weather and wineskins and, and trees and flowers. He would use anything that, that they're, they're walking by and he would teach a lesson from it. And he does the same thing here. So he comes to the tree, finds only leaves, and in the middle of verse 19 it tells us, Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Mark chapter 11, verse 21, Peter said that Jesus cursed the tree. That's when P- Peter was talking to Jesus about that. Um, and he pr- so Jesus pronounced its destruction. He killed that tree with a word. Immediately it says the tree withered. Now if we compare the passage in Mark, on the first day he cursed it, and the second day when they went by to look at it, the tree was already dead. It wasn't dying, it was dead. So immediately, as soon as Jesus pronounced a curse on that tree, it died. It took a little while for all the leaves to fall off, but it died immediately. So what's the meaning here? Well, it wasn't because Jesus was being spiteful and throwing a, a hissy feet because he was hungry and he wanted some fruit, and so he got upset at the tree. He wasn't angry at the tree, but it became a useful and a powerful object lesson for a lesson that he wanted to teach. The meaning becomes fairly obvious when we look at the context and the circumstances. The first day he's on his way to the temple, and he stops and curses the fig tree because it it has nothing but leaves. It was a pretense of fruit, but no fruit. There was a pretense of fruit, but no fruit. And then from there he goes right in and cleanses the temple. Do you think there's a connection there? Absolutely, there's a connection. That fig tree is is symbolic of Israel. The leaves are symbolic of Israel's religious activity. And the fruitlessness is just as symbolic of Israel. They have a form of godliness without the power. Paul said in Romans 10, 2, For I can testify about them, talking about the religious leaders, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on in knowledge. They didn't know God. Paul goes on to say they didn't submit to God. 
So Jesus cleansed the temple, and in so doing, he denounced their religion, he curses the fig tree, and he denounces their nation as fruitless. You see, fruit is always the indicator of salvation. Always the indicator of salvation. We just have to go back to Matthew chapter 7. You remember, and Jesus simply says in the Sermon on the Mount, by their fruit you shall what? You shall know them. If you remember the parable in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the four, the four soils, we, we studied that, and you find that the good soil is seen as good. Why? Because it produced fruit. And if you were to look at John chapter 15, verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear what? You'll bear much fruit. Fruit is always a manifestation of true salvation. What God is saying here is Israel is a nation with a pretense of religion that is unsaved, unredeemed, lost, cut off from the Lord. And at that moment, he is focusing on Jerusalem, which demonstrates by activity holy zeal for God, for his name, but busily engages in religious activity, all of which is completely fruitless. And unfortunately, it remains that way today. A lot of religious activity without the fruit that comes from knowing the Messiah. They rejected the Messiah. Then they reject the Messiah today. They're going through their vain repetition. They were doing their religious religion before men to be seen by men. And it was all nothing but leaves because they denied the truth of God. They denied the revelation of of God in their own Messiah, and they're just going through religious motions. And so Jesus pronounces judgment. You know, in Luke chapter 13, there's interesting use of this same picture about a fig tree. Different, it's a parable this time. In, in verse 6 of Luke 13, Jesus uses the parable and says, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit, but it did, uh, but it did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Many theologians feel that that's Jesus talking about his three years of ministry there in Israel. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll, I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. If, it. if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Give it a little more time, Lord. Be patient. And Jesus actually did. And he gave Jerusalem a little more time. It wasn't immediately after the three years of his ministry where the destruction came. It was 40 years later when Rome came in and sacked the city and totally leveled the temple. The Lord was patient, but he had cursed the tree. It never did bring forth fruit. Both the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the tree were, were dramatic. It's, it's no wonder the Jews reacted strongly to both situations. And they wanted Jesus dead. Jerusalem and Judaism are, are spiritually fruitless, sinful, cursed for judgment. That's essentially the message of Jesus, the King. They had forgotten what John the Baptist had said way back in Matthew chapter 3. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning off the chaff with unquenchable fire. That, too, was a statement of judgment. 
Right from the beginning, the message was that the Messiah would come and he would come in judgment. The acceptable year was really over, and he was pronouncing judgment. Notice at the end of verse 19 there in Matthew 21, it says, Immediately the fig tree withered. Mark says they, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. One morning they saw it full of leaves, the next morning it was dead, withered from the roots up. But you know, they should have seen it coming from the Old Testament. They should have understood that that judgment was coming. All the way back in Deuteronomy, chapters 27 and 28, they deal with whether or not Israel is going to be blessed or if it's going to be cursed. Whether they're going to be in the promised land or out of it. In chapter 28, verse 1, listen, it says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all His commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. So if you're obedient, he's saying, you're going to be blessed. Listen to some of the blessings. Very next verse. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and your young of, of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. And it goes on and on for the next 14 verses. All the blessings. But then in verse 15, God says, however, however, If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. And the crops of your land and the calves of the herds and lambs of your flocks, you'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. And it continues to the end of the chapter for 68 verses. Curses, curses. In Isaiah chapter 5, we have a similar kind of passage where the Lord says, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. He's talking about the nation of Israel. My, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. that He'd be referring to the land of Canaan. He dug it up and cleared it of the stones. He removed all of their enemies and planted it with the choicest vines. He, he built a watchtower in it. This refers to the protective ceremonial system that he uh, built around them. And cut out a wine press as well. This refers to the whole sacrificial system. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. He looked for fruit. He looked for obedience. He looked for true worship. And the end of verse 2 says, But it yielded only bad fruit. And he only found disobedience in the chasing after other gods, the chasing after idols. And the rest of chapter 5 there in Isaiah is a pronouncement of curse after curse after curse. So the curse was already established all the way back in Deuteronomy. You obey, you'll be blessed. You disobey, you'll be cursed. And they disobeyed, and they disobeyed, and they disobeyed as we read through the Old Testament. And Jesus finally pronounces judgment on them. As long as they continue to reject the Messiah, they will continue to be under a curse. One day in the future, God promises He's going to gather His people together, perhaps a remnant, when the Messiah returns. But even today, they are surrounded by the enemy and they are on constant alert because they believe the whole Arab world wants them destroyed. They're in a constant state of vigilance. 
There is no peace. Life for them is reduced to two basic things, survival and defense. Survival and defense. Why? I believe it goes all the way back to the curse that the Lord pronounced way back on Jerusalem. The curse that Isaiah pronounced upon them. The curse that God pronounced upon them way back in Deuteronomy. You disobey me, you come under judgment. Someday, as I said, according to God's promise, his people are going to be redeemed. They're going to recognize the Messiah. And when that happens, they're going to sense the true peace from their enemies. So that's the a, that's a meaning of the parable itself, which, which we should also take to heart, even in our particular day. How many people are there in churches today who have a lot of leaves, but no fruit? Let us not be one of them. We also need to be aware of a movement, a movement away from Scripture, from people within churches, people who have formerly called themselves evangelicals. Just this past week, for the first time, I heard the term exvangelical. Have anybody heard that term? It's out there. Yes, my wife has. She was the one that brought it to my attention. Exvangelical. Apparently, this has been going on for quite some time. They, they have, these people have, due to changing social norms, turned their back on solid biblical preaching. They are in the process of deconstructing religion. That's actually a term, religious deconstruction. You can look it up on the internet. And they have six pillars of religious deconstruction, six things that they are trying to deconstruct. Number one, the Bible. It's no longer, in their opinion, inerrant and it's open to interpretation. And they point out, quote, discrepancies or contradictions similar to what we talked about in Mark and Matthew. Number two, eternal torment, hell. No such thing. Just a scare tactic. Number three, the penal substitutionary atonement. Christ's atoning work for our sin. He took our punishment. They say, nah, never happened. Four, suffering in the world. This proves that God's not a loving God. I mean, if God is good, why do people, why, why do children suffer and, and uh, innocent people die? So God must not be good. Number five, the end times hype, as they call it. No truth in that, just a scare tactic. And number six, the church. Try and deconstruct the church. In their minds, the church is based on pagan practices, so we should just get rid of it. This is happening. Many of you know the name of John Piper, a famous writer, author. His son, Anthony Piper, has become an ex-evangelical. You also know the name of Tony Campolo. His son, Bart Campolo, is now an ex-evangelical. In an article I was reading about this, it says, and I quote, there are, there are concerns in some quarters that theological dis, uh, deconstruction is merely a fancy term for moving away from biblical teaching. Bart Campolo's story, From Progressive Christianity to Atheism, is cited by some as a stark warning of what can happen once you start to let go of evangelical beliefs, and listen, which are culturally difficult to hold. They're swaying towards the culture. Bart, who is the son of prominent author and speaker Tony Campolo, admitted on the Holy Heretics podcast, 
that moving towards a more liberal view of God's sovereignty was, in his words, the beginning of the end of his faith. He explained, and I quote from Bart Campolo, once you start adjusting your theology, okay, once you start adjusting your theology to match up to the reality you see in front of you, to match culture, it's an infinite progression. So over the course of the next 30 years, my ability to believe in a supernatural narrative or a God who intervenes and does anything died a death of a thousand unanswered prayers. Campolo continued, I passed through every stage of heresy. It starts with sovereignty going, then biblical authority goes, then I'm a universalist, now I am marrying gay people. Pretty soon, I don't actually believe Jesus actually rose from the dead in a bodily way. That's how bad it's getting. Folks, Christ is looking at his church today. This is happening within churches. And I believe he's seeing a lot of leaves. And his heart is grieving because there will be judgment. Let us not be a church of leaves, but always be a church that bears much fruit. We now switch to the second lesson. I told you there are two, two lessons that Jesus taught here. second lesson that Jesus wants to give to his disciples, and that's about faith. How does that happen? Well, it comes from the disciples' shocked response from what they saw happen to the fig tree. Verse 20. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. At a word from Jesus, that tree died. How did that happen? How did he do that? That was an amazing amount of power shown in a word. So Jesus takes their question then and teaches them a lesson that they needed to know because within a week, they were going to be on their own without Jesus in his earthly presence with them. And he says in verse 21, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what has, was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, no, no doubt referring to the Mount of Olives upon which they were, Go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. He was probably talking about the Dead Sea. That was where Jericho was. They had just come up from, from the Dead Sea. Now, I don't think he was probably talking literally here. Not that God couldn't do it. I, I, I believe that God could do that if he wanted to. But because I found that in Jewish literature, a rooter up of mount, mountains, it's a, a term that was used, was a metaphor for a great spiritual leader. It's in the Babylonian Talmud that uh, they call the great rabbis rooter up of mountains. In other words, people who could remove great obstacles, people who could solve great problems, people who could express great power. Rooting up mountains became a metaphor for dealing with difficult or impossible situations. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to know that you have that same power. And this power is available to you through faith. If you would believe and not doubt, you're going to, be able to, you're going to, you're going to see God's power at work. Paul prays in Ephesians 1, if you remember, for believers to, to have and exhibit, quote, His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. In the upper room in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. 
And then in verse 14, in the same chapter, he says, You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. In fact, here in our own passage, the, uh, the last verse of our particular passage in verse 22 says, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. That's amazing. They were amazed at what Jesus did to that fig tree. And Jesus says, you've got that same power available to you. You've got that same power. And he turns it into a lesson about prayer for them, that, that you can see the same power working if you believe So what kind of faith are we talking about here? Now, faith is not hoping something to be true. Faith is not faith in things that we think ought to be, or faith in in you, or your ideas, or my ideas, or dreams that we may have, or our own ambitions. Faith is placing our confidence in God, absolute confidence in God. So when he says, if you have faith, it doesn't mean something nebulous. Well, I believe in believing, or I believe because I should be believing. Faith is placing confidence in something you know that is true. It's believing in God as God has revealed himself. So to say if you have faith and do not doubt is to say that, that you know that God is able and will do what he says he will do, then you can see it done. It's not like the children's story of the engine that could, heading up that hill. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. He crosses the top. I I knew I could, I knew I could. No, it's more, I know he can, I know he can, I know, I knew he could, I knew he could. That's faith growing. Faith is going to be absolutely essential for his disciples as he steps off of the scene in about five days. They've got to understand what that is and what the results of that would be. Folks, when we ask, consistent with God's revelation of himself, consistent with the name of Jesus Christ and his purpose, consistent in an unselfish way to the glory of God, we can know we'll receive it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Remember back in Matthew 17, 20, when when Jesus delivered a boy from the demonic spirit after the disciples had tried and couldn't do it? And they asked him, why, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, if you remember, Jesus wasn't talking about small faith. Like the seed of a mustard is the smallest of seeds. Though the seed is a tiny seed, it grows into a large bush, even into a tree where birds will build their nests. The idea is that if we have faith that starts small but gets larger and larger and larger and larger, we're going to see God do amazing things. We're going to see God's power at work because He wants to work and accomplish His will. and He wants to do it through us. And the only way we're going to know how to pray with faith is by knowing Christ more. Having that intimate relationship with Him, growing in Christ. Paul says, my one desire is to know Christ. We thought He knew Him. He said, I want to know Him more. We need to be experiencing God every day. You know, when my dad was alive as a child, I knew what I could ask him and what I shouldn't ask him because I knew him. 
In the same way, we need to draw nearer and nearer to God, and as we do, our faith will increase because we'll know what we should be asking for because we'll know him. And Jesus says to his disciples, if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. That is an amazing promise. An amazing promise. One that so many people just don't grab a hold of. And if we understand that that means all things in the will of God as we ask him, it doesn't weaken that at all. It just makes it all the better. Because what do we want? We, we only want what God wills, right? We, we want whatever God wants for us because we know it's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. We want the best that God wants for us. I want the best that God wants for you. I want the best that God wants for His church. I want the best that God wants for His ministry. Whatever it is, I want it. I deeply, truly want it with all my heart. And here Jesus says, if you really believe God wants that, and God can do that, then let's see the exercise of your faith in persistent prayer. And the power you'll see is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's amazing. This morning we need to examine our own hearts. In that regard, are we experiencing the power of Jesus in our lives? Are we producing or evidencing fruit in our life that is pleasing to the Lord? Or are we just going through the motions? Are people just seeing a bunch of leaves with no fruit? In order to bear fruit, we need to have that relationship with Jesus. My question is, do you have it? Have you ever truly asked him to be Lord of your life? See, there are a lot of Christians around the country, around the world, that are doing the religious thing and feel, yeah, they're Christian because they go to church. They, they, they're pretty good. I've heard of pastors that have pastored and preached most of their life, and all of a sudden it dawns on them that they have never made that decision for Christ and submitted their life to Christ. How does that happen? No idea. But we need to search our own hearts. Is there fruit in our life? Or are we just a bunch of leaves? And if you find, in fact, that you have a relationship with him and that there is fruit there, may it be that it's a fruit of persistent prayer and that fruit will continue to produce and our faith could continue to grow and that we learn the lesson these disciples needed to learn that all the power that the Lord has when he cursed that tree And even more is available to us when we call upon him in faith. And may we pray persistently in faith without doubting for each other and for the purposes of Christ and his kingdom and in our lives and in our church. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as we sing What Faith Can Do one more time. Father, this morning we thank you. Thank you for that lesson. And I pray that we would take that lesson to heart. Search our own hearts, Father. If, if, if there is something that is hindering your work in our life, I pray that you would point it out. If we have been going through the motions of going to church and being a good, quote-unquote, Christian person, at the end, you're going to say, I never knew you. Father, if we have never made that decision For Jesus to be the Lord of our life, I pray that you would speak to us and open our minds and let us be able to realize, oh my goodness, I need to do that today. 
And I pray that you do that new work. And Father, I pray that our church will be a church that will be fruitful for you. I pray that you'll bless it and use it for your glory and for your honor. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.